0: Right, team, welcome back to the Mantalk Show. I am, as always, Connor Beaton. Joining me today is Dr. Shafale, who received her doctorate in clinical psychology from Columbia University, specializing in the integration of Western psychology and eastern philosophy. She brings together the best of both worlds for her clients. She is an expert in family dynamics and personal development teaching courses around the globe. And she has also written four books, three of which are New York Times bestsellers, including her two landmark books, The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family. So as you can imagine today, we are going to be diving deep into parenting. This is an interesting one. She recently just wrote a book called The Parenting Map that just came out and the parenting map is a step-by-step solution to consciously create the ultimate parent-child relationship. Now, we aren't going to necessarily, we're going to do a little bit of a couple of things just so, you know, just give you a heads up. If you're not a parent, that is okay. <laughs> this is still going to give you some really valuable insight because we talk about what this younger generation is going through. You know, what a teenager in today's culture and society might be going through, what you know, a kid in grade one or grade two might be going through. So this starts off a little bit, of, little bit of a conversation around what is the youth of today going through? And then we look at how do we as parents, how do we as a society, how do we as a culture best support the youth uh, based on what we know about psychology and about spirituality? And so she has a very wonderful approach. I really love Dr. Shafali's work. And so this is a a fabulous conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I also got to talk a little bit about my dad experience uh, as limited as it might be in the last two years, but it is a wonderful, wonderful conversation. So if you are a parent, this is certainly one of those episodes you're going to want to send to your partner, to your person, have a listen separately and come together and have a conversation about, you know, what you learned, what you took away and uh, what you found to be useful. And if you're not a parent, maybe this is the podcast that you send to your prospective parenting partner. I don't know how else to say that, but (laughs) maybe future, you know, future co-parent. Yeah, there's probably a billion different ways to say that better than I just said it. Anyway, all of that awkwardness aside, thank you so much for continuing to tune in. February was our biggest download month yet. I have some fantastic guests coming on the show. I know a lot of you really enjoyed Scott Galloway recently, and there's going to be more like that. I'm actually interviewing some wildly fascinating people, and we are going to be diving deeper into some very interesting social dynamics and social questions in the coming months and in this year. So as always, man it forward, and without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Shefale. All right, Dr. Shafale, how are you doing today?
1: Great. I'm so happy to be with you.
0: Yeah, likewise. Likewise, it's good to have you here. I mean, I've been following your work for a while. I just became a father 22 months ago, so this is yes. this is probably a, a very timely conversation. <laughs> um yeah, well before before we get into your book, before we get into your work, I ask all the guests the same question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. And that defining moment can really be about anything. It can be about your work, it can be about parenting. So let's just begin there.
1: Oh my goodness. I have had so many defining moments, but I think one of my earliest was when I uh, was around 21 years old, when I left my country of origin, India, to uh, fulfill my wanderlust. I had this deep wanderlust to, to travel and to discover more about myself. And this was way back in the early 90s when we didn't have internet. So it was very daunting. I was extremely, you know, the rest of cash. So I was a poor student that came to America. But what that ex- journey taught me, that experience gave me was the power of disrupting old patterns and letting go of the comfort zone and truly embarking on a journey of the unknown and how valuable not knowing is because in the not knowing is that liminal space of rediscovery, but if we're constantly tethered to the knowing and constantly attached to how it was and how it should be, which is already something preconceived, then we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to fly. And in that slight We have so many choices and so many different ways to go. And that experimentation allows us truly to to test our grit and discover resilience and also live life in the most creative way possible. So I think those early years of having left the old and embracing the new launched me on this ever long journey of evolution. I mean, I've constantly kept evolving since then. Because life doesn't have to just be one way or you, you can have many lifetimes in the same life uh, filled with many characters, many scripts. And that's the beauty of this journey is one life to live in. And then parenthood, we know, you know, is a whole new chapter, right? So we have all these chapters that we can embrace, but we have to be willing to fly into the unknown.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's such a good segue into what we're talking about because there's many preconceived notions about parenthood, about parenting, you know, preconceived notions that we have gained from our families, you know, our family of origin and our upbringing and then society. And then, you know, on top of that, I feel like social media, I, I swear every single time I go on to social media, there's some contradictory parenting advice. You know, it's like, <laughs> I feel like there's so many different forms of parenting advice that are that are out there and it's I'm glad to have you on the show because I feel like you sort of have written some of like the seminal work on this topic so when it comes to parenting and we're going to focus predominantly on that I just want to sort of start high level and talk about you know how do you define an exceptional relationship between parent and child what are some of the contributing factors that go into that cuz i think i see some people treating their kids like a friend and then maybe there's like not very good boundaries or structure there and then some people you know aren't very friendly with their kids and they're more rigid so how do you start to define some of the parameters of what makes a, uh, an exceptional parent child relationship
1: yeah i love that question so first uh, your listeners need to know that i talk about something very particular and it's quite revolutionary I talk about conscious parenting and conscious parenting as a model is drastically different than the model you and I were raised with and the model that's out there. So right at the outset, people need to know that this talk may provoke them because I challenge all our preconceived notions in the traditional parenting paradigm. In fact, I say that a lot of our traditional parenting belief systems are lies. They're full of crap and we need to really burn them up. So I talk about conscious parenting, and in my new book, my latest book, "The Parenting Map, it's especially good for fathers because I laid it out in a very, you know, systematic, linear way that men typically like. We and like that
0: order. We like that structure.
1: Order a lot of, you know, practice exercises, very concrete. Um, I really dive into what is that optimal parent-child relationship, and to put it really briefly. An optimal parent-child relationship is one where the parent ushers the true essence of the child into manifestation. So that's a whole bunch of big words. But what that means is that, the and this is the conscious parenting model, that we do not treat our children as our puppets or our minions here to control, fix, and curate into this perfect superhuman being. And where we're so dependent on their outcome, where our focus is really who are they going to become. Conscious parenting talks about who they are and how we as parents can let that isness of their essence flourish. Most of us as children were not given the chance to be celebrated for our essence. We were told that who we are is not good enough. And fathers especially, males especially in this culture I've really, you know, and this is an unpopular thing I'm going to say, have been given an equally, if not sometimes harder edge, right? There's this notion out there that, oh, men have it so easy. But I I don't know whether that's true. I think in the toxic patriarchy that we can sometimes be embraced by, men suffer as much. You know, males have this burden of being the strong ones, of being the emotionally stoic ones, of being the providers being resourceful, being the ones who have to combat danger. You guys have a lot that you have to put on your shoulders. There's no option for you, you know? Now, of course, in the modern era, many fathers are opting to stay home and the mothers are opting to work, fine. But biologically, your role has been quite strict and stringent. And that places its own onus, right? It's not a free ride, as people like to sometimes spit men as having, that, oh, they're, they're just so lucky. Well, you have certain advantages compared to females, but females have certain advantages too. And yes, you are a little bit higher up of the totem pole than in this hierarchical structure, but um, fathers especially need help and guidance so that they too can flourish in the parent-child relationship while also flourishing in their essence, right? Many males have been stripped of their true self-recognition and been pitted into these uber masculine roles and uber stoic roles that may not be their essence either.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because like I have a son and I think about quite frequently, even before he was born, you know, one, the world that he's being born into, I think about how I, how do I prepare him for that? Because there's many sort of intersections where there's challenges, right? In terms of, what it means to be a man in today's culture, whether, you know, that's necessary or needed. Some people see that as dangerous or toxic or, you know, I mean, there's just so many different narratives that come about. And so I've really spent a lot of time thinking about how do I prepare him for the hardship that life is going to thrust onto him, you know? And I think that that's something that parents throughout history are constantly thinking about. And the hardship today looks different from a hardship, you know, a hundred or a thousand years ago. Where would you say that the notion of risk and getting outside of discomfort plays into some of this? I know, you know, I'm a big fan of like Jonathan Haidt's work, and he's talked about how we sort of have created this comfort culture within parenting. You know, we don't let our kids go too far. We don't let them play outside by themselves. I'm just like personally and selfishly curious to get your take on on where do you think that encouraging risk and autonomy and sovereignty fits into this notion of, of how we parent our kids. And, and are there specific things that we can do in order to encourage that?
1: Yeah. So here's the thing about life. It is inherently risky if we don't interfere too much, right? So now... Our generation, my generation has created for your generation of parents a real conundrum because now you have all these things at your fingertips. When I was raising my daughter, I didn't have all this. Oh, you want to go out to eat? Okay, we have to wait for the right reservations on the right day. Nothing is going to come to your house like it does today. Oh, you want to go in a car and we don't have one? Oh, we may have to wait a long time for the bus or wait for a taxi. We have to reserve a taxi. Things are so different now. So life right now in the modern era, very much in the present moment has taken out that element of hardship. Like a lot of hardship has been removed due to the influx of technology, right? We don't even get up to put the blinds down anymore. We have remotes for everything. So talk about the extreme levels of indulgence and comfort that have come down just through technology. The parent doesn't even have to do any interference. Technology is interfering now and taking away the inherent, beautiful, right balance of discomfort that life normally provides, right? So with every era, we've been moving away and more away from discomfort because we we don't like discomfort. So what that has done is created a very strong tendency in our children today, to be indulged, to be entitled, to, to not have denied gratification skills. And they really have no tolerance for any anxiety now. They, and I don't want to badmouth them. It's not their fault. They grew up into this world of uber comfort and technology. So, mm. but let's talk about what we parents can do, right? So the way I like to help parents understand the relevance of risk is that there are two kinds of risk. The natural disasters of life, the natural risks of everyday life. guess what? A kid shoves you in the hallway. A kid, you know, steals your apple. A kid calls you dumb, fat or ugly. A teacher is rude to you. You got a bad grade. You lost your paper. You bought up late. The alarm didn't go off. The car tire punctured so you didn't get to school on time. A myriad of natural disasters are beautifully present in day-to-day life. Now, what we parents do wrong is that we jump in to fix the natural disasters that our children experience and we rob them of the discomfort that arises in that experience. And that's where we overcoddle our children. So I always tell parents, if it's natural disasters, natural life experiences, their first heartbreak, their first acne outburst, their first first time they were told they had a crooked nose, let them experience these feelings and tolerate them without your interference. So if a kid comes home and says, oh my, my friend, do we have a crooked nose? You know, don't rush to get them a nose job. Go, okay, you you may have a crooked nose according to that guy. It's okay. We can deal with this. It's not going to kill you. Oh, okay. You got a C grade. It's not going to kill you. But you see the, the reason we can't tolerate natural disasters of life and the beautiful natural experiences and allow our children to have them. Is because we are pain intolerant. So we cannot tolerate our children being unhappy because we take that to mean we are not successful. We're not doing a good job. We're failing. And big feelings create discomfort in us. So if it's something natural, try to stall your interference. Now, of course, if they're younger, you may have to interfere at some point. You may have to jump in and take them in an Uber if the tire is punctured, but allow them experience that disappointment, it's okay. That natural disappointment is actually making them more robust. But don't introduce too much artificial pain in their life, right? Try not to have a screaming war in front of them with your partner. They don't need to see that, right? That's not That's natural. True. That's because you're <laughs> messed up, right? So recognize the difference between natural risk, which is healthy and is normal, and they should be participating in that versus unnatural. Now, what if there's a terrorist attack right outside your, your city or right next door and your kid is below the age of eight? Well, use discretion because children who are very young, especially under the age of eight or 10, don't have the bandwidth to emotionally regulate during periods of high trauma. So you want to regulate and titrate the degree of disaster they're exposed to. But things that happen in their little intimate life, they should be allowed to experience it without you immediately. You can do it later, buffering them from it.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's, I love the advice and I, I think what you're saying is, is very true. It occurs to me that much of what our younger generation is, is facing is social hardship, technological hardship. Like it's it's very much psychological. You know, it's, oh, I posted something and, you know, 10 people commented that I look stupid or ugly or they don't like my photo or what I'm wearing or, you know, those types of things. It seems like so much of it, I think about my childhood, you know, I'm I'm turning 40 this year. And so I think about my childhood, There there was no social media, there was no external commentary. And so when I was doing stupid shit, you know, on the playground or in the backyard, nobody was commenting on it. You know, maybe the kids that were there, but it wasn't out in the world for the world to see and and comment on. And so it it does seem like there's less physical hardship that kids are experiencing this day and much more psychological hardship, existential anxieties that they're facing. And so I'm, I'm curious if you can comment on that because I, you know, I recently saw in the Washington Post they were talking about how this piece of research w- had come out recently that nearly one in three high school girls had reported in 2021 that they had seriously considered suicide, which was up 60% from a decade ago. And they attributed a lot of this to social media. And so I think a huge concern that parents have is, you know, how, how do you prepare your kid for the onslaught? Because I do think that it takes a certain amount of psychological strength. I don't know if you've ever experienced you know, putting something out online and then having, you know, dozens of people just rail against what you're saying or really dislike it or critiquing you or or attacking you. But I do think that kids really take that personally. So what's your comment on on where social media fits into this a parent's role? I know I'm asking you some very specific and sort of big questions, but I think that this is one of the questions that parents ask. It's like, how the hell do I deal with social media? And how do I create some psychological resiliency within my child to deal with some of the challenges that that come along with that.
1: Okay, great. So on a big level, on a macro level, as a species, we're not supposed to be sitting on our asses so much, so to speak, sorry to be so crass. And because we're sitting around, as the phrase goes, idleness is the devil's workshop. We now And because we're not running for food and survival and we have so much indulgence, like we've gone overboard that our intrinsic nature to move, to be busy, to be surviving, to deal with nature, to be out in nature is become so obscured and limited that now, of course, we have nothing to do but waste our energy, you know, ruminating about psychological shit, right? Because we have too much time. To do this nonsense. Okay, so that's just as a species, we're going down the wrong way. We, have, we are not supposed to be so indulged, so entitled, so sedentary, so wasteful, so idle, just sitting around, you know, not in nature, in front of a, a one-way screen, which is not even about connection or community or tribe. We're not concerned with tribal needs. We're not concerned with family or community, the big we. It's not even the eye, it's now a disconnected eye. Even the sense of self is getting discombobulated because you're interacting with virtual reality now. So the more we disconnect from reality, it's more and more poisonous for our psychology. And that's what you're seeing just on a species level in the last 30 years, especially in the last 10 years. Then for our children, children are not able to process, like I said, this influx of stimulation. They cannot weed out what is constructive criticism, what isn't. You know, maybe grandma should comment and maybe the neighbor can comment. But this influx of strangers having a say in our children's lives is just toxic. They cannot process. I am completely against social media for kids until they're 14, 15 is at all and then highly regulated. Social media for young children is a no, 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 no. I don't care if it has positive sides. They don't need the positive sides. We grew up without the positive sides. They can grow up without the positive sides. There's no added benefit when you weigh it in with the negative. The negative is so toxic. That's why our kids' esteem is being destroyed because they're being exposed to things that children should not be exposed to. They are being exposed to adult realities and to virtual reality, strangers, that they cannot process. Even grandma was too much input, right? So even the Thanksgiving party was a bit too taxing for our children because we had invasive, poisonous adults giving information and opinions and they didn't need to. Now they're handling it on a vast, unmitigated, unlicensed, unsupervised way. It is absolutely the worst thing for children. Children need to live in, A very controlled way, meaning they need to have control over their reality. They they cannot navigate the vast waters of the unknown of the internet. It's too vast. We're not supposed to be looking into other people's lives the way we are. It's not healthy for us adults. I already know too much about people's lives than I should. I should not be seeing where they went for their birthday dinner or the new high heels they bought or the new you know, facial treatment they got, because it immediately creates a comparison. And comparison is the depth of presence, right? Now it takes me out of my life and makes me feel like I should be somebody else's life, which anyway is a virtual screen of their life. It's not the true life. So it is all round, absolute terrible and toxic. So we should have very strict boundaries. The TV was bad enough when we were growing up. But social media is absolutely a no-brainer, toxic influence for children under the age of 14, 15. The Surgeon General said so himself. So,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, pr- I appreciate that because I think it's the big one that I think a lot of parents are, are trying to navigate and know how to set rules and boundaries around it and limits and all, all of those things, or even have the conversation about it to just say, you know, if you don't have social media and you're a 12-year-old boy or you know 12-year-old girl, that's okay you know that's not the end of the world just because your friends have it doesn't mean that that you need it so what are, in in your book you talk about some of the you know inherited patterns that we've grown up with that maybe sometimes are not productive or maladaptive can you just illuminate some of the patterns that you're referring to like what are some of the preconceived notions about parenting about raising a, a kid that maybe don't serve us that we need to be aware of Uh, when it comes to raising really healthy, authentic, grounded children?
1: Oh my God, there's so many. And in this book, The Parenting Map, which we're talking about, in the first stage, I talk about the misbeliefs and the lies we've been told. In the second stage, I talk about how you as a parent can break your patterns. And stage three is about building conscious connections with your children. So in terms of the lies we've been told, I can't even begin to tell you how many, but we've been set up as parents to fail. And the reason we've been set up to fail is because we've been told that it's our job, our responsibility as parents to raise uber, successful, super perfect, super humans. And we've been told that we can, meaning we have unmitigated control. So these two belief systems that I have supreme control over my kid, and I should make them into these amazing human beings, now creates a toxic cocktail which puts relentless pressure on me to put relentless pressure on my kid. And nobody is happy. We're missing the entire point of childhood. The point of childhood really is for children to discover who they are and feel grounded in that isness of their essence and not feel like they are unworthy because they are not who their parents thought they should be. And I can tell you, especially for young males, the pressure on young males to be something they're not, talk about the entire school system, is actually ill-designed for the typical boy. The typical boy has way more testosterone than the typical girl. And just by that, his muscular movements, his need for activity and, and stimulation is way higher just because of his biology. And he's been confined to the chair. And there's a war, I believe, against young boys. One in every five boys is being labeled with anger, with ADHD. Poor boys, you know, they're like, I'm just being a boy, you know, and they don't know what's hitting them. And they're told that they're bad, right? They're bad, they're bad, they're bad. And then they grow up with this sense of needing to suppress their masculinity. And masculinity is a beautiful thing, you know. And I, as a female, admire masculinity. And I actually want masculinity to temper my femininity. Just like males, we are telling them to feel more. Well, we also need to honor the part in them that is masculine and actually can compartmentalize and can rationalize and can logicalize the things that we actually put men down for. There's beauty to masculinity. When masculinity becomes toxic is when it becomes extreme. When compartmentalization becomes domination, when, when extreme logic becomes tyranny and head games becomes gaslighting, that's when it becomes extreme and that part is toxic. But Poor men, you know, walk around today scared to be masculine and they shouldn't. You know, masculinity when tempered with femininity is a beautiful combination indeed. So we've been told all these lies about how a good boy or girl should be, that they should be successful, that they should be ambitious, that they should be competitive, that they should be athletic, that they should be a genius, really. Um, and also that they should be happy. And I laugh when I when I say that a new child is 22 months. Watch how unhappy this bloody child is. You're you're going to be telling the kid what another day, and you've tried all day. Sometimes these kids cry all damn day, and we're like, "Hello, am I doing something wrong? And what is or What is wrong with you? Why do I get the unhappy kid? And you didn't actually get the unhappy kid, and there's nothing wrong with you. You just got a human, and some humans <laughs> are temperamentally more cranky and some are not. And some, you know, my daughter's emoji on the phone is a porcupine because my daughter is like porcupiney, you know, she's got bristles. She's not soft and easy. She's not a cushion. She's got like hardcore bristles. And until I recognized that as beauty, I was having a tough time with my daughter because I had bought into the paradigm that she needs to be soft, cuddly, and pliable and really my little bread that I can knead into whatever, my dough that I can knead into whatever roll I want. And that's what I teach in this book, The Parenting Math. How can a parent train themselves to attune to who your child's essence is? Because when you, when you tap into your child's essence and allow that essence to be seen as the superpower, damn, now you're raising a resilient kid. What makes an unresilient kid, right, is a kid who doesn't trust their own knowing and their own power to handle emotional upheaval. Well, we contribute towards our children being unresilient because we tell them that who they are should not be trusted. Their knowing is not important. So we leave the way, we dominate them, we control them, and then we want them to be resilient when they don't trust their inner voice. So this book trains parents. So if you're a parent out there, especially a father, you have so much beauty to offer your children. Your children need you to show up in the most beautiful, integrated way, integrated in your masculinity and femininity so that they can learn to transbear masculinity and femininity.
0: Yeah, I love that. That sort of framework that you're putting around this and and how we approach it. And just the recognition of, I I think, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Reeves, who wrote On Boys and Men. Uh I Yeah, coming on the show soon. And he's talked extensively about how the education system is not beneficial for young boys because young boys' prefrontal cortex develops slower than young girls. And, you know, when they enter into school too soon, they're just not able to keep up. And I mean, it's interesting, like I remember, I'm a child of the 80s. And so I was in school in the early 90s when Ritalin and ADHD was first being sort of dished out. And I was one of those kids where, you know, that was the sort of label that was put on me. It's like, oh, he's ADHD and he's just hyperactive. And so he needs Ritalin and he can't sit still. And, and I was like, no, I just had a tremendous amount of energy and no one was actually teaching me or showing me what to do with that energy or making that energy. Okay. And I see my son who is this beautiful, his name is code, C O D E code. And I call him code dragon. Cause he's just this like fierce, ferocious, you know, free spirited little guy who has a tremendous amount of energy. And I've, I'm learning to really allow that to flourish, but I can still feel that part of me that wants to, that like wants him to fit into some mold that I have, you know, which is really shocking because I've, I consider myself to be pretty open and spiritual and like all of the things and then but then here's my boy and I, you know, that urge to have the best for him, you know, so as an example, he's, he's 22 months, but he's not talking yet. You know, he's saying da, da and Beep beep, and like you know, a couple of things. I really was. I found myself getting stuck, being like, "Why isn't he talking yet?" And you know, he, we got to get him to talk. And and my wife was like, "It's okay. Like he's going to talk on his own accord." And you know, we had a couple of meetings with a, a doctor or two, and they're like, "He's totally fine. Like he's developmentally great. He's you know, he's just taking his time to speak." But I could feel that pressure that I had of you should fit into my expectations in your development as a child. And it's like, my God, like, what an interesting thing. So what are some of the tools that we as parents can implement? Like, how do we actually train ourselves to allow this flourishing of this human being to emerge, you know, out of who our child is?
1: Yeah, it's not going to happen naturally. Even you, who is so into psychology and mindfulness, Even you see your ego roaring. That's why I always say conscious parenting is not something you are, it's something you become. So, you know, that's why I write these books, because I train you to really become conscious about what children can and cannot do. In this book, I teach parents to understand kids' psychology, understand kids' language. What are they trying to communicate? Literally, if you read about boys, just in your case, they literally lag behind on verbal skills by at least five to seven months. So your kid is fine, but you don't know that. So you're getting panicky, right? And you're watching your ego wanting to put him on the normal belt curve. So he's not an outlier. And then what if he's not coordinated or not muscular or not athletic, right? All these labels are boys. And then girls who have their own labels about being compliant and dainty, and should look all pretty and cute and kind and soft. And oh my goodness, we have our whole slew of issues. Beautiful skin and hair. We have other issues on top of what boys have. We also have we have to be physically attractive and we have fit a certain mold. And so do boys. But in all these ways, we stereotype our children and we try to bottle them up into a prescription. And we don't understand that children are going to, the best kid, quote unquote, the best kid is the one who feels comfortable in their own skin. That kid is going to grow up to be resilient. And we're so filled with fear because of the future outcome, right? You have fear. Oh my goodness. I'm going to have the only kid who doesn't talk. I'm going to have the only kid who doesn't go to the bathroom. I'm going to have the only kid who X, Y, Z, because we're projecting into the future. And we need to understand kids' psychology, understand developmental timelines. They're so varied, especially in the first four or five years. Things are so fluid. There's no point panicking. You know, panic after like first grade, second grade, if you want to panic. But there's no point panicking now. And in fact, there are whole schools of thought where we understand that children should not be forced to speak, should not be forced to read not be forced to write. In fact, those skills are being pushed too early before the brain is naturally ready. Children develop slowly, some slower than others, but they all develop, but maybe by the age of eight or nine. So there's a long arc here, but because we are competing with each other and we develop very stringent artificial timelines, faster, sooner, better, larger, bigger, louder. Anybody who doesn't fit into that now is being seen as slow and therefore kind of behind the curve, which is not true. The curve has a long arc and we don't know that because we haven't educated ourselves. So I write in this book, you are not here to raise an adult. You know, there's this whole system of thought that you're raising an adult. No, you're raising a child. Children have special needs. They have specific timelines. They have long arcs. And if you don't understand that the childhood is the whole of childhood, meaning on the way, literally till 25, because the brain is not developing. So at least till 18, give your kid the arc to be a child, you know, and even then there's going to be spillover. So if you look at childhood as a long arc perspective, and with that lens, you relax, You will enjoy the moment. Trust me, once he starts talking, you're going to be big ready. You'll be like, where are those days of dada? And when he starts saying no and go away, daddy, and I don't like you, daddy, you're going to be like, can I zip this kid's mouth up? So don't rush it. And this whole need for instant gratification spills into our parenting. And especially males, you know, where you you all have been indoctrinated to be hunters, so y'all are into acquisition and achievement and competition and outcome. So you think you're this easygoing, mellow guy. You are, but watch how that instinctive male energy will come out with your kid, and you'll be screaming on the baseball field. You'll be one of the dads, <laughs> screaming and yelling and fighting with the other dads because you because that's the ego. So that's what this book it talks about is our our subconscious ego and. Uh, recognizing those unhealthy patterns so that we don't project them onto our children.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's so good. I, I do a lot of, I like the Jungian lens and I do a lot of shadow work with the men that I work with. And I've always appreciated and really loved your work because it, it is self-reflective, right? It's less about here's what you need to know about your kid, although you do have a good amount of information on that. And it's more about here's what you need to know about you as a parent and what's emerging because of your kid. I value that framework because I think it it's very empowering and it it depressurizes the system with our children. And we we have sort of, especially in North America, I mean, we've turned our kids into these. It's like a factory line, you know. It's like they have to perform by a certain age and they have to these grades and and you know the amount of kids that their schedule from seven a.m. until eight p.m. is just jam packed. At the age of like six, is insane, you because, know. It's like because just it
1: began. We are driven by our notions of raising that uber-perfect, successful kid. So all we care about is getting them to that successful adult phase. We are missing the beauty and the necessity, the pivotal need to have a childhood. We're robbing children of childhood. Childhood is meant to be not with a lot of stress, not with a lot of trauma, with a high degree of autonomy, a high degree of rest and the the child taking the lead, but instead we're ushering them from one structured activity to the other where they're being bossed around constantly by adults telling them what to do. So they literally reach the age of 10, not knowing who they are because all their lives they're just being told what to do. But you know where I see it the most? And maybe you see this too. I see this with kids who are leaving college and I'm, I'm a little, you know, interested to see what my daughter will do. She's 20 and she's going to leave college at 22. Then is where you realize how much agency your kids really have. Because till then, we've so structured them into these kind of failure-proof, do this, then do that, then do that. And then by the age of 24, when they graduate or 22, that's their first foray into this unlicensed territory of like, now it's on you. And if we don't prepare them and we keep pushing them into structured, supervised activities where they're highly monitored, we're actually... Reducing their chances at being resilient and reducing their self governance. We're robbing them of it, really.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I was a little bit of a late bloomer in terms of what I do now. But, you know, I think in many ways, I attribute the freedom that I had as a kid to get things wrong, to play outside, you know, all this unstructured time to just be in nature and you know, do sort of crazy shit sometimes as a, as a little boy. But that developed this part of me that was willing to take really meaningful, sometimes calculated, sometimes not risks. And that has served me so powerfully in my life. And sometimes people are like, you know, what's, what would you attribute some of your success to and it? it I, you know, I would trace it back to that. And so yeah. I could talk to you for hours. Unfortunately, we have to, we have to pause our conversation here. I'd love to have you back on to talk about discipline and, and where we find that balance, how we have, you know, the hard conversations with our kids. I I really enjoyed this. For people that are interested in your book, The Parenting Map, where would you like them to go to pick up a copy and learn more about you?
1: So they can go to my website, com and uh, grab a copy of this book. It's it's really made out step by step. If you want to be a better parent, I personally don't think there's any book out there like it. You know, I am so about this model of conscious parenting and having raised my own daughter, I see how it works and what an effect it has on children. So I encourage all your listeners to grab a copy and share it with people because this is how a new movement gets into place is when a lot of people, that's how conscious parenting and my work has even become widespread, even though it's so provocative and different is because one parent at the time began to realize its efficacy and power and began to spread it for me. I don't do much work, but a lot of ambassadors out there, parents who've seen its profound impact have begun to talk about it. So thank you for having me. Thank you for doing the work you do. And I'd love to come
0: back on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll have the links to that in the show notes that you can check it out. This is probably a great episode for you to listen to with your partner, whether it's somebody that you have kids with, whether it's somebody that you want to have kids with, If you're exploring that conversation. This is one of those episodes that you just fire off to them, listen to, have a conversation and man it forward. So until next week, thank you so much for joining me. And this is Connor Beaton signing off.